1: All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. slash switch.
2: Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active mint customers by 531.24. Get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
1: Hey there, I'm Grant Wall. Welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. This week we have a special episode. It's the first episode of my new podcast series called Throwback, which tells the story of the first Women's World Cup back in 1991 and the U.S. team that played in it. I have had an absolute blast working on this over the last couple of months. If you enjoy it, please consider subscribing to Throwback. We'll have former episodes posting over there each Thursday until the start of this year's Women's World Cup in June. June 19th, 1999. It was a historic day for many reasons. The United States was hosting the Women's World Cup for the first time, and the U.S. national team was set to play at Giants' stadium in New Jersey. But the historic moment I want to talk about took place before the first whistle, before the team was in the stadium, before they were even off the bus. Here's Christine Lilly, who is about to play in her third World Cup.
0: And then we started to continue to go, and the exit we were getting off at was where all the traffic was. We're like, geez, what is going on? Why is there so much traffic at our exit?
1: I know, a traffic jam. Probably not the historic moment you were expecting. But journalist Caitlin Murray, the author of the book The National Team, spoke about the magnitude of this moment.
2: It wasn't until the players started to see that these cars had. Paint on them that said Go USA, and they had red, white, and blue. And that's when the players realized, oh, wait, all of this traffic is here for
1: us. See, up until this point, no one was sure the U.S. team would fill
2: NFL stadiums. And as they got closer to the stadium, people recognized that it was the team bus, and they were taking pictures of the players. But the players had never seen anything like this, and they were taking pictures of the people, taking pictures of them.
1: This was the U.S. national team playing in the World Cup. And they were shocked that so many people were on their way to see them. So imagine how they felt when they heard this.
0: Aaron Heifetz, our PR guy, gets on and he's like, ladies? ladies
1: the game last night had sold 74,200
0: tickets, which means in all likelihood... The game sold out. will be a sellout. Yeah! And we were like, yeah! And then we drive into where the Meadowlands is and we see people tailgating girls with Mia Hamm jerseys on, face paint and everything. And we're like, holy cow, this is happening.
1: This was the moment when everything changed for the U.S. women's national team.
0: Every stadium we played in was sold out and we had a following. We were like rock stars for like a month.
1: The U.S. would go on to win the 99 World Cup. They were on the covers of People, Time Magazine, and, yes, Sports Illustrated. They had done the unthinkable. They made a women's sport a national obsession. They had come a long way in eight years. I'm Grant Wall, and this is Sports Illustrated's new podcast about the untold stories behind legendary sports moments. Welcome to Throwback. The 99 U.S. women weren't a sensation because they won. They were a sensation before they even got off the bus. Why?
2: They felt that it was their job to make the 99 World Cup a big success. They were also putting in extra hours going to youth clinics, schools, uh, soccer camps, anything they could find where kids were playing soccer. Stars of the national team would be there handing out flyers and telling them, you know, let everyone know we're going to be in your city for the World Cup and you need to come. And it was sort of like a door-to-door salesman sort of mentality.
1: Can you imagine any other professional athlete doing that? These were Olympic gold medalists hanging out with your kids during clinics. But that mentality didn't just happen. It was shaped by what came before. Sometimes you get the sense people think women's soccer started in 99. But in reality, it was the end of the beginning. They kept
0: calling him pioneers. And I thought, you know, (laughs) that is so true. But there was so much that happened before that.
1: That's former national team player Shannon Higgins-Sarofsky. And the before she's talking about is a prequel that even most diehard fans don't know much about. There was a Women's World Cup in 1991. I've been covering soccer, including the U.S. Women's National Team, since 1996. During the 99 World Cup, I was a 25-year-old following the U.S. team every step of the way for Sports Illustrated, from that stunning sellout in New Jersey to the post-final victory party in California. The Sports Illustrated magazine that week with Robert Beck's classic cover photo of Brandy Chastain celebrating in a sports bra, that was my first SI cover story on Deadline. I've never seen a story catch fire like the US team did over those 3 glorious weeks. For years I've been covering the stars of this podcast, people like Michelle Akers, Julie Foudy, April Heinrichs, Mia Hamm, but I still didn't know much about the earliest days of the team. What I discovered is 99 couldn't have possibly happened without 91 Or as Michelle Akers, who was on both teams, puts it. The 99
2: World Cup team was the tsunami hitting the shore that many years later. I don't think everyone quite understands what happened. Because I
0: think that story hasn't been fully told.
1: The next five episodes are that story. It's an origin story of the U.S. Women's National Team and the Women's World Cup itself. It's a story about underdogs, a love of the game, and a fight for equality that goes on today. In the words of Mia Hamm,
2: It wasn't just about, let's go win this thing, but let's celebrate the opportunity that we have here to make a lasting impression.
1: We're going to hear a lot more from Mia Hamm and the players on the 91 team later on, but to understand what the 91 team did we first need a quick but super important lesson on how the first Women's World Cup even happened. To find out, I called a friend of mine in the United Kingdom who's one of the world's leading historians of women's soccer.
0: Yeah, you guys arrived, he's got a cup of tea.
1: She's also clearly very friendly and very British.
0: My name is Jean Williams. I'm a professor of sport at the University of Wolverhampton.
1: Williams has written books about the history of women's soccer, which
0: actually goes back a long, long way. The short answer is probably women have always played football. In 1869, the uh, Harper's Bazaar has a an image, a cartoon, of women having a kickabout on a high day and a holiday. Um, and then we know that there were organized matches from 1881, England versus Scotland.
1: In the early 1900s, there was a paying public for women's soccer in England, which consistently drew crowds of 10,000 fans, or about half the size of what MLS games draw these days. During and after World War I, women played in soccer matches to raise money for charity and wounded veterans. And these games were so popular, they had crowds as high as 55,000, the kind we see today in the Premier League. But soon after the war, English soccer's governing body, the Football Association, banned the women's game among its members.
0: So it was a really blanket ban.
1: The rationale for banning women's soccer was that it was unsuitable for women and could possibly threaten their ability to bear children. Women's teams tried to fight that thinking, even going so far as to organize a game to have experts weigh in.
0: 44 doctors attended, and they held football to be no more strenuous than a heavy day's washing.
1: The FA didn't budge. In fact, similar multi-decade bans on women's soccer were also imposed by the federations of Germany, Brazil, and other countries. But by the late 1960s, unsanctioned women's teams were starting to spread, especially in Europe. Meanwhile, the sport was slowly picking up steam in America. In 1975, Brown University started a trend by becoming the first U.S. college to have a varsity women's soccer team. With FIFA staying out of women's soccer, an unofficial Women's World Championship, backed by the Italian beverage company Martini and Rossi, took place in Italy in 1970 and again in Mexico in 71. More than 100,000 people filled Estadio Azteca to see Denmark win its second straight title by beating the host Mexicans in the final. Private businesses were capitalizing on women's soccer. And at the same time, women's rights movements were happening globally in the early 70s. So national federations in England, France, Germany, and elsewhere ended their bans. That brought about official recognition from FIFA. But this actually made things
0: worse. Effectively stifling the growth of women's football by neglecting it. They'd kind of taken it in-house and then just kind of parked it. It was the
1: soccer version of catch-and-kill. FIFA would spend two decades in charge of women's soccer without organizing a FIFA World Championship. The sport was dying on the vine. In 1986, a Norwegian Federation member named Ellen Wiela had had enough. So... At the FIFA Congress in Mexico City, she addressed the nearly 100%
0: male gathering of national soccer officials
1: from around the world.
0: I think it's very difficult to um, imagine now how male um, that must have been. Wheeler says she was nervous. It was the sports version of the United Nations
1: General Assembly, except the giant room was filled with hundreds of men. The only other women were translators. And that's the way it had always been. Do you know, was that the first time that a woman had ever spoken to the FIFA Congress?
2: Yes, it was the first time it was a women there. And it was the first time a woman spoke.
1: Ever. And the men Wheeler was approaching? They weren't exactly known as feminists. The FIFA president was Joao Havelange, a Brazilian who'd been in charge since 1974, but had never pushed for a women's global tournament. His right-hand man, FIFA's Secretary General, was a middle-aged Swiss man named Sepp Blatter. Yes, this is the same Sepp Blatter who would go on to be FIFA president until 2015. The same Sepp Blatter who presided over FIFA's culture of corruption, which led to a slew of U.S. indictments and his resignation. The same Sepp Blatter whom I actually ran against for FIFA president in 2011, with the campaign slogan, Cure the bladder infection. Part of Bladder's problem was his notoriously suspect way of talking about women in soccer. Bladder is now 83 years old, and when he was growing up in Switzerland, he says, the idea of women's soccer was foreign to him. Football was the macho game, and it was definitely not a game for girls. Bladder had plenty of cringe-inducing moments over the years speaking about the women's game. For instance... There was a statement you made in 2004 as the FIFA president. You said in an interview that women's soccer players should should wear more feminine garb than the men, suggesting that women wear, quote, tighter shorts. You were criticized for this. Do you wish you had not made this statement? No. I said they should be feminine. The
3: good people from the press, they said it. He said they should be sexy. I would never say that. The future is feminine. So please look like a woman. Easy.
1: Please look like a woman. Seriously. And yet, Bladder of all people may be the anti-hero of this story. As crazy as it sounds, he's one of the most important figures in the history of women's soccer. He's also one of its biggest disappointments, which is to say, it's complicated. On the other hand, Ellen Wheeler doesn't get nearly enough credit, at least in most parts of the world. In Norway, they call her the mother of women's football. And here's one reason why. At the 86 FIFA Congress, Ellen Wheeler was listening to the president give the activity report, a sort of State of the Union address. And when he opened up the floor for questions and comments, Wheeler stepped to the microphone and made herself heard. And then this lady started
3: to say... Mr. President, I can tell you that we are uh, really, we are not happy with the report you have presented because women's football is only mentioned, not even a full page, and this is not correct.
1: Wiela wanted more than half a page for women's soccer. There were specific actions that she wanted FIFA to take, so she spent the next 10 minutes explaining them.
2: Yes, I had uh, three points. I want the world championship for women. I want uh, women's football to come on the Olympic program. And I want the common rules for all the country.
1: No one was expecting this. And when she was done speaking, President Havelange basically said, don't blame me, Seth Blatter wrote the report. So, all eyes turned to Blatter. First of all, I was a little surprised uh,
3: about the reaction of the president. But then he rose to the moment that Wheeler had pressured him and all of FIFA into. And so this was the moment uh, when I had uh, been challenged uh, by a lady for women's football. But then I was a very happy man because I've said, okay, madame, I said, I will accept uh, the, the challenge. And uh, you will see, we will go for the
1: organization of a Women's World Cup. No verbatim transcript exists of what was said that day, but Ellen Wheeler confirms that Blatter gave his word that FIFA would organize a Women's World Cup.
2: Seth Blatter uh, gets on the stand and said that we should have a, a, a world championship for women, so he promised it uh, there in the room.
1: After parking women's soccer for years, he had been with FIFA since 1975, Blatter was the leader who finally took action to get women's soccer running over the next five years at FIFA. That meant finding a host country for the 91 World Cup. That meant arranging qualifying tournaments. That meant making sure each continent could field women's teams. Without Ellen Wheeler's stoic bravery, and without Blatter finally seeing the light, who knows how long it would have taken FIFA to act. But it was a reckoning that came far later in soccer than with other sports. The global governing bodies of women's volleyball and women's basketball, for instance, they had world championships in the early 1950s. I asked Blatter about FIFA's delay. The first official women's football match between France and the Netherlands happened in 1971. Why did it take 20 years before FIFA established a women's world football championship? Because
3: FIFA was sleeping. That's all. Let's say you can blame me because I was technical director of FIFA at the beginning, but I had other problems.
1: In any case, in 1991, FIFA would finally hold a Women's World Cup. But for the U.S. team, the road to get there was full of challenges. Almost none of the players were really even professionals.
0: And when we got out with national team events, they would actually give us $10 a day for spending money. (laughs) I used to
2: save that so that, you know, we could, you know, live after you were, you know, when you came back.
1: They were traveling the world trying to become a team in conditions that are hard to believe. The hotel room is horrible and you can't drink the water
2: and there's no toilets um, and the food has uh, maggots in it.
1: And on top of all that, the U.S. was a brand-new program that had to compete at the highest level against veterans who had been playing for a lot longer than 15-year-old Mia Hamm.
2: I realized I was not a very good soccer player, that I had a lot to learn and a lot to develop if I wanted to stay on that team.
1: And when I say FIFA would hold the Women's World Cup in '91. Even that was complicated.
2: Yeah, so the first Women's World Cup was called the first FIFA World Championship for Women's Football for the M&M's Cup, which is gibberish. It's complete nonsense.
1: And what did players like Julie Fowdy think of that?
2: There's nothing more sexy than
0: the (laughs) M&M's Cup, really. (laughs) And I think they even had, like... Two M&Ms on the cup or something originally, (laughs) I mean,
2: classy right there.
1: The reason for the different name was clear to everyone.
2: FIFA was worried that the event wouldn't be worthy of being called a World Cup. It would tarnish the idea of a World Cup.
1: The indignities didn't end with the tournament's name. FIFA nearly decided to use a smaller ball before thankfully reconsidering that horrible idea... But they did go ahead and change one of the fundamental aspects of the game. I didn't even realize this until I started looking closely at that tournament. The games were 80 minutes long, not 90?
0: Yeah, because women can't play 45 minutes, Grant.
1: (laughs) Seriously, though,
3: that was the thinking. It was also the impression at that time... From the physical point of view, the ladies maybe are not so much prepared, that men, and to play uh, only 40 minutes. It gets crazier.
1: Even though FIFA said it was worried about the players' stamina, to save money it forced the teams to play their group stage games every other day, with only one rest day in between. These days, teams have four full rest days between World Cup games. As Karen Jennings-Gheberra explains it,
2: It's crazy right now for me to realize. I think I played six games in like 14 days.
1: This is the untold story behind the first Women's World Cup. A story of determination that years later would define an American style of play and eventually lead to sold-out stadiums. But in 91, it was for pure love of the sport. It had to be.
2: We didn't care what it was called. We didn't care where it was. We just wanted to participate and go after something we dreamed about.
1: How do you prepare yourself to play a sport in those conditions? How does a country even form a national team? And how does the U.S. women's national team go from this? and got her
2: Ashes kick. we weren't even close to this. We played a style no one else did. Nobody else pressed. Nobody had seen that. And I think it opened some eyes here these Americans that don't have any sort of a football culture. Uh, Their girls' team has played together only a few years. And they have kids that are 15, 16 years old.
1: That's next time on Sports Illustrated's Throwback. ProBack is written and hosted by me, Grant Wall, produced by Grant Irving. Associate producers are Kara Kornhaber and Harry Swartout. Executive producers are Scott Brody and Ben Eagle. Editing by Emma Morgenstern and Adam Durison. Original music by Nolan Schneider, mixed by Sam Baer. Thanks to U.S. Soccer, Cadence 13, and everyone who took time to speak with us with this episode. ProBack is a production of Sports Illustrated. For more of the best sports storytelling, visit SI.com. One more thing. If you like the show, please do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. Hey, it's Grant here. Thanks again for listening to the first episode of Throwback. If you enjoyed it, please consider subscribing to Throwback. It would really help us, too, if you wrote a review and gave it a rating. See you next time.